Uh, keep your Bibles on Romans 3:21 to 26. That will be our text for this morning. We have been working our way through an 11-part series called uh, The Work of Christ. We've made our way all the way up to the crucifixion of Christ. Um, we're not going to look at the event itself uh, in one of the Gospels, as we have done with all of the other major events, uh, the triumphal entry in these things. We've been examining these major events uh, to see what Christ accomplished through those or how they play into the work of Christ. Uh, we're not going to look at the cross itself or that particular event because I would say that so much of what took place there is you, you cannot see it. You can see him nailed to the cross and die and all that. You can see him make the atonement, but there are a lot of things that you cannot see uh, that were accomplished there. And so uh, my goal this morning is, is to take a look at this Romans passage to just, and let me tell you, I'll give you a disclaimer real quick. We could never even come near um, expositing all that took place at the cross in one sermon, let alone probably a thousand. So we're just going to look at, you know, I would call it a multifaceted diamond that's seemingly endless, what took place at the cross. We're just going to look at three facets from this text and how they play into the work of Christ. Um, so I gave you the disclaimer, and then uh, secondly, maybe I'll just pray for us as we get ready to um, kick it into gear. Father, uh, we just humble ourselves and ask that uh, you would help us to focus this morning and that you would send the Spirit to take the truth and apply it to our hearts uh, whether we be uh, someone who has yet to come to know Christ in a saving way or yet we be a veteran saint or a new saint or whatever, just take the word and apply it to us. Sanctify us and save some of us if there'd be any here that don't know Jesus. And uh, we just pray that um, you would move in power through the word and as you do. And we see in uh, Hebrews 4.12, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And so uh, just apply it to us today. And uh, may we be humbled, may you be exalted during this time, and, uh, and may you receive all of the praise and glory uh, for this message and for everything else that takes place here. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you spend, just as an opener, if you spend any length of time uh, reading Paul's epistles, uh, you will notice that he covered a whole range of subjects and doctrines and things like that. He, he really did. I mean, it, his epistles, he just covers so much in them. And, uh, but you would also notice that there was one subject out of all of the subjects that he covered that seemed to um, maybe captivate him more than many of the others. One that he seems to come back to often, and he kind of just exalts in it. And that would be the crucifixion. That would be the crucifixion. He actually told the Corinthians, he said this to them in one of his letters. He said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, and I kind of think of that as Paul's vision statement. It's just what he wanted to be about. And, and it's amazing when you think about it, Paul, the man who wrote so much and so much doctrine, he really kind of reduced it all down to, that's what I want to be about. That's what I want to know. I want to know Jesus, and I want to know him crucified. I want to know, and I want to understand what took place at the cross. It was kind of his vision statement. It was kind of his focus. And out of all the things that he looked at, 
that was one that he tended to emphasize more than the others. Paul understood that the crucifixion was the zenith of Christ's work and the high point of the mission he was sent to accomplish. In Romans 3, Paul refuted the widely held belief that people can somehow make themselves righteous or right with God and become justified uh, through their own effort and obedience. That seems to be what he's dealing with in this text. Now, this line of thinking of earning your salvation, if you want to call it that, or earning your righteousness, it was prevalent and widespread in Paul's day, uh, I would say especially among the Jews, which he wrote to very often. He was a Jew himself. And, And what the Jews had done is they had basically exchanged the clear teachings of the Old Testament, the Torah, which focuses on faith. They had traded the emphasis and they had traded kind of the faith for tradition. They had exchanged the scriptures for tradition. And in their tradition, their traditions focus on man-made rituals and obedience to those rituals. And so they kind of evolved out of or morphed out of a faith-centered view, like that's how you're saved and justified and all that, they moved away from what the Old Testament clearly teaches into the realm of tradition which says you better do things. You better earn God's favor. You better earn your righteousness. You better wash your hands a certain way. You better do this. You better do that. And Paul attacks that mentality and that line of thinking in this text. The scriptures make clear that no fallen sinner has ever been made right with God or justified apart from faith. And I I need to say that because there's a lot of Christians that think that the Old Testament, it's a whole different system of religion versus the New Testament. They tend to think that, well, in the Old Testament you had to follow all the laws and all that, and that's how you were made righteous. That's not true. In the Old Testament you were saved by faith, just like you are in the New Testament. So don't go there. Don't think, well, the Old Testament had all the rules and all that. It definitely had all that stuff, but people were saved by faith just the same as they are in the New Testament. Faith is the key. It says in Scripture, without faith, it is what? Impossible to what? To please God. Think of Abram before he was renamed Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish people, if you will. How was he made right with God and justified? By faith. Remember, he believed God, Genesis 15, 16. I mean, that's all the way over in the beginning of the Bible. We can see that it's a faith thing. Abram believed God and God justified him or called him righteous because that's what justification means. It means to be declared unguilty. It means to be declared righteous. But the Jews of Paul's day had lost sight of this critical truth, which is reiterated not just in Genesis, but all through Scripture. They were about tradition. They were about ritual. They were about obedience to those things. That's how you're justified. That's how you're saved. The pseudo-Christian group called the Judaizers had infiltrated many of the churches that Paul had planted And they taught that believers are justified by faith plus obedience. And their big thing was circumcision. Okay, if you're going to be a true Christian, 
You have to believe in Jesus and you have to be circumcised. Apparently women escape that whole clause. So maybe that's just a guy thing. I don't get it. The church at Rome, which Paul wrote to, was primarily Gentile, non-Jewish. But these guys were beginning to, if they hadn't already, completely infiltrated this church. And they were poisoning many, many minds. They were preaching this toxic, false gospel of it's, it's, it's partly, it's like a 50-50. It's monergism and synergism. It's, it's part God and it's part you. And that's how you justify. You have to justify yourself by obeying what God teaches. Or, as they would put it, by doing what we tell you to do. Now, this is why the Apostle Paul mentioned things that pertain to the law or all these Jewish categories in this letter. I mean, think about it. He wrote this letter to Romans, to churches in Rome that were primarily Gentile, 99%. Why does he talk so much about Jewish categories? Because of the infiltration of false Jewish teachers that came in and taught that it's Christ plus your works. I mean, you wouldn't normally talk about these things with Gentiles. What was Paul attempting to do even in our own text here in this whole letter? He was attempting to clear up any confusion about the matter, about faith and obedience and these things. And ultimately, he was seeking to confound the false teachers. In Romans 3, 21 through 26, Paul shows how God makes sinners like you and I righteous, how he justifies them or us, and how these things are related to the crucifixion of Christ and to faith. Now let's begin at verse 21a. I just divided the verse. Are you there? Romans 3, 21a. Paul says this, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Stop right there. The first thing we see Paul do here is declare that the righteousness that God gives to believers is entirely apart from obedience to any law, even God's own revealed law. It's exactly what he has said, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What he's saying is that the righteousness of God, it doesn't have to do with the law. Now, how would that strike a Jewish believer? What do you mean the law doesn't play into this thing? What do you mean that my part of obeying the law doesn't play into this? God's righteousness is in no way based on human achievement, on anything that man can do in his own power. As I said earlier, righteousness is based on faith, and it's been that way since the beginning, according to God's economy of things. Abram believed and was justified by God. Not Abram obeyed and was justified by God. Now, it is totally true that Abram's faith produced obedience, but don't flip them. Don't, don't make the Catholic error don't flip these things around. Don't even add obedience to how you're justified at all. There is an order here. You have faith first and then obedience follows. Obedience does not come before faith. Faith comes first. Obedience follows. 
And we mustn't forget Isaiah's words, obedience apart from faith is but filthy rags. You have a whole lot of people in the church and out of the church that are trying to earn their way with God and yet they don't even believe in God. They don't even believe in Jesus Christ. I'm finding that this is, uh, it's a pandemic in the church today that you have so many people that are ju- they've just set their mind and their goal is to obey and to try to earn favor and to try to earn righteousness and these sorts of things and they don't comprehend the gospel at all and yet they call themselves Christians. And the fact is, is that obedience apart from faith, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ and you try to obey and earn, it's nothing but a stench in God's nostrils because the key is faith in Christ. So Paul made a really the devastating declaration that obedience to the law will never make a person righteous. That's what he said here. It didn't matter how hard you work or how hard you try, your obedience won't produce any measurable percentage of righteousness with God. It won't. In the next half of verse or verse, it it looks as if Paul anticipated that some of his readers would object and try to say that he was attempting to introduce a new kind of righteousness, one that needed to be rejected. Look at 21b. And I love how Paul writes because he does this all the time. He makes a very profound point that some will be seen as controversial, then he always follows it with some kind of a counterpoint or a question because he knows what his readers are thinking. Wait a minute. And that's exactly what he begins to do here, 21b, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is basically always, when you see that in Scripture, it's a reference to the Old Testament. I mean, If you think about the Old Testament, in a nutshell, it's the law and it's the writings, the proclamations of the prophets. And yeah, there's some songs in there and things like that. There's the wisdom books. Paul was, what he's saying here is that he's not referring to a new kind of righteousness, but to the divine righteousness that is spoken of throughout the Jewish scriptures. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the law and the prophets bore witness to this righteousness that I'm telling you about. It's not a new thing. And you know how people are itchy for a new thing. Ooh, there's a new thing. No, this isn't a new thing. This is an ancient thing. This is how it's always been. Not only do the law and prophets proclaim God's perfect righteousness, but they affirm what Paul just stated, that without exception, men are unable to achieve That righteousness, or this righteousness that we're talking about, in their own way or in accordance with their own power. In the next line, Paul declares how the righteousness of God comes to a person. Doesn't come through obeying the law. And it's always been that way, and that's what he said so far. Look at 22a. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Rather than coming to us through obedience to the law, Paul wrote that the righteousness of God comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. You really can't get any simpler than what he just said there. Now I talk about this all the time at RHC because I think it's very, very important. And I'm 
mostly doing it to remind myself of its importance, not to remind you. Christ is the only person in history to never sin and to obey God's law perfectly. He's the only individual who's ever done that and who ever will. Because of this perfection and obeying God's law perfectly, this earned him a perfect righteous standing, I would say, as a man. During the crucifixion, he exchanged his perfect righteousness, this standing and this righteousness for the sins of his people. And I like to put it like this, the one who knew no sin became sin. And the ones who knew no righteousness have become the righteousness of God. We call it the great exchange. This righteousness is not an object or a status that is laid up in heaven for those who will one day put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not as if he's taken this righteousness and put it in account and it's on hold for us. It's not really the way it works. The way that it works is this. When a person believes he or she is placed in Christ, and that is how they are made righteous, because he is the righteous one. They take on his righteousness. They become covered by his righteousness. And that is what the Father sees when he looks upon the believer, the person who has put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. He sees the righteousness of Christ and then he justifies them or declares them to be righteous. Those are some of the greatest words ever spoken by the Father. You are righteous. And that's a declaration that stands. It doesn't waver. It isn't changed. God is immutable. It is a declaration that sticks. If you are in Christ, he has declared over you, you are righteous and there's no way to change that. It's eternally set. In the next two lines, Paul seems to anticipate another objection, and he kind of keeps doing this in this passage. Some of his readers may not have believed that this righteousness is for all people. And when I say all people, I don't, see, I don't mean every single individual who ever live, lives now or will live in the future. I mean that all types of people, every tongue, every tribe, Revelation 7, 9, vast multitude of people from every ethnic background and multi-generations. Folks from every tribe and tongue is the way we ought to look at that. Now, the Jews certainly held this view that salvation and this righteousness was exclusive to them and them alone. You know, they had singled themselves out. We're the chosen people and all of this stuff and the scripture is about us and for us, and it isn't about or for anyone else. The Judaizers may have held that view as well, except, of course, they had the Judaizer view. It's, it's for us, the Judaizers. Look at verses 22b through 23. For all those who believe, and he's speaking of this righteousness, God's way of righteousness, it comes to us through faith in Christ. It's for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The provision of salvation and the righteousness it brings is granted to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, Phil, you're countering the doctrine of election. No, the anyone who believes is the elect. 
It all works together. Anyone who believes this righteousness is available to anyone, it is made possible and available to anyone who believes. Salvation and righteousness is for those who believe. It's not for everyone. It's not universal. It's for those who believe. And in God's sight, there is no distinction. Every believer is equally righteous and accepted. Did you hear me? Every believer is equally righteous and accepted. I want to say it one more time. Every believer is equally righteous and accepted. I want that to burn into your mind because you have believers today that, that think that this guy over here is better than him and she thinks that he... And look at how his walk is and look at hers and mine doesn't look anything like Fred's and I'm a disaster, I'm a mess, I need to get up to par and get to his level and start earning and working. No, 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 no. There's no distinction. As believers, we're all on the same ground. Even the, the person who, who gave their life to Christ last night, and I would say that kind of stinks because I've been doing this for 14 years. He shouldn't be at my level. He is. He's justified. He's accepted. He's no different than me. He's my brother. She's my sister. But don't we tend to think as we walk the Christian faith, we tend to think that we're getting to different levels. And don't, don't mistake in sanctification and maturity. That doesn't play into your righteousness. That's fixed. You may become more mature. Of course, you better be more mature in the faith than the guy who got saved yesterday if you've been going at it for 21 years. If you're still going, you got a problem. That's his job to go, and you help him to not do that anymore. You know, it talks in Scripture, there's a progression. You start off on milk, and you kind of move to the meat, and next thing you know, you, you, know, you got tri-tip, and you got all these variations. I don't know. I don't think that's how. It didn't say that. But you do move to the meat, and just pick a meat of your preference. Chicken. No. No. No, don't defile this place with thoughts of chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just start calling them out. Maybe not. Every believer is equally righteous and accepted. And every unbeliever is equally unrighteous and rejected. Now you just think about that right now. I know that one dude. He's worse than all those other guys. Well, he might be committing more grievous sins than someone else you know, but in God's eyes, he's just as lost as the guy who isn't doing those things. God really has two categories Believing and unbelieving. In God's eyes, every believer cannot be better than another believer. They are equals, and an unbeliever cannot be worse off than other unbelievers. They are equals. God does not view humanity like, and my old boss Carl will like this, he doesn't view humanity like a product line. In car audio, we had good, better, and best. We still use that. I mean, you're still doing it, right? You'll walk somebody up to a set of amplifiers and this is good, this is better, and this is best. There's no good, better, and best categories in the faith. There's actually no good. We shouldn't even think in terms of who's good and bad, right? In God's economy, there are no good, better, and best people. The scriptures teach that none of us are good. 
This is magnified in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, there's where we don't, God doesn't draw a distinction because that's the status of every lost person. That's the status of all of humanity if God doesn't do something for somebody. And it is true that many have been made righteous through faith in Christ and are now justified, but they are no better than others. The only thing that separates believers from unbelievers is saving grace and faith, which are both gifts. And I would also add the presence of the Holy Spirit. Man, if if I could somehow remove grace and the faith and the Spirit and those things from my life, I would immediately return to where I was about 14 years ago. And my wife would be like holding divorce papers because I was blowing it. You just go right back. And that's truly what separates us. That's it. It's really all by God's grace. And that's all that separates us. There's no good. There's no better. There's no best. Even when you're a believer. Now let's take a look at 24. Right? So there's, for all those who believe, there's no distinction. No good, better, and best. Lost is lost. Saved is saved. All of us started out the same way. Sin, fall short of the glory of God. Now verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Here Paul tells us that justification is a gift of God's grace given through faith in the redemptive work of Christ Jesus. Now redemption is the act of buying something back. Our recyclables have a redemption value, and when we turn them in at the recycler, he or she will redeem or buy them back for a price. And I get it, it's a very small price. But at least you're getting something back, and that's, they are redeeming those things. In the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea was given the difficult task of acting out God's love for his wayward people by marrying a harlot named Gomer. Later, Gomer left Hosea and fell into an adulterous relationship and some sort of slavery or servitude. Hosea found her, redeemed her, and brought her home. That's redemption. Another example would be Ruth and Boaz. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. That's what we call him, a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is one who buys a relative. He's like a relative that buys another relative, whether they be distant or close, out of poverty or out of slavery. Boaz, I believe, was related to Ruth by marriage. And after her husband died, later on, he redeemed her and made her his wife. That's redemption. It's to buy something back. At the cross, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, performed the all-time greatest act of redemption. The all-time greatest act of redemption. He bought his family members, every believer, out of slavery with his own blood and made them his own. That is what it means to be redeemed by Christ. He bought us out of slavery. You remember at the, uh, uh, it was the transfiguration that we looked at a couple of weeks ago where Moses and Elijah were there talk, talking to him and and, you know, they were pointing back to the exodus. And Moses led an exodus. He led the Israelites out of 
bondage and slavery and, and Jesus right before going into Jerusalem to, you know, to, to be betrayed and to, and to suffer and to die and to resurrect. He, he was going there to lead another mass exodus, but not out, of, not out of Egypt, but out of sin and bondage. Moses was the ancient Israelites' redeemer, but he was really nothing more than a foreshadow of the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ, who would redeem his people at the crucifixion. You see, Christ is the better Hosea. Christ is the better Boaz, isn't he? When we first believed in Christ, the redemption that he secured for us at the cross was applied to us and in a way made active through the power and through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, if you will. It was at this point that God justified us. And what does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous. And it's not contingent on how well you perform or how terrible you are. It's based on the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. God declares us justified, which means you are righteous. I see you in Christ, my beloved righteous Son. And you are therefore righteous. That's what he says. Now, the Bible refers to our salvation as a gift of God's grace. It is important to note that even our justification is a gift of God's grace. It says it right there in verse 24, does it not? Taking it further, 2 Timothy 2.5 says that repentance is a gift from God. And Ephesians 2.8 says that grace and faith are also gifts from God. Let me just put it to you this way, friends. Every facet of our salvation is a gift of God's grace. Not one part is based on our obedience or merit. Your only part was to sin. His part is to save. It's all God, and it's all grace, and that is why Ephesians 2.9 says, so that no one may boast. You can't go into heaven and say, look what I did. It's not going to work. Now take a look at our last verses. Verses 25 through 26. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because man cannot become righteous on his own, God graciously provided for His redemption through the atoning sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. That sacrifice was not made in the dark or even in the hidden and holy recesses of the sacred temple where that priest would make that sacrifice every year. No, no, no. This atonement, this sacrifice was made openly on the hill of Calvary for the whole world to see. God displayed His Son publicly as a propitiation. What does propitiation mean? It means appeasement. It means satisfaction. 
the ancient pagan religions, as in many religions today, the idea of man's appeasing a deity by various gifts or sacrifices was common, is common today. But in the New Testament, propitiation always refers to the work of God, not man. Man is utterly incapable of satisfying God's justice except by spending an eternity in hell. Man apart from Christ, that's how he'll satisfy God's justice, by frying in hell for eternity. The only satisfaction, the, or propitiation, if you will, because it's the same thing, they're synonymous, the only satisfaction, the only propitiation that could be acceptable to God and that could reconcile God to man and man to God had to be made by God. And for that reason, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, gave Himself as a ransom for all. His sacrifice and death and His alone satisfied the justice and satisfied the wrath of God. God is just, which means that He will not let sin go unpunished. He doesn't turn away from it. He doesn't forget about it. He holds everyone accountable. And He will unleash His wrath upon the ungodly and the wicked. Romans 1.18 But God is also merciful. He displayed His mercy at Calvary by offering up His own Son, who is the only one who can provide a way of escape from God's justice and wrath. You just think of the first Passover. Those who painted their doorposts with the blood of lambs were protected from what? The justice and the wrath of God. Think of Noah's Ark. Those who entered the ark were protected from the justice and wrath of God. Now think of Christ. Those who enter Christ by grace through faith will be protected from the justice and the wrath of God. The first Passover and Noah's ark point to Christ who would come to shed His precious blood to permanently propitiate, satisfy the justice and wrath of God for who? For all who believe. That's a fantastic truth that's right in Scripture. God in His forbearance had passed over the sins of those Old Testament saints who trusted in the coming Messiah. At the cross, those sins were no longer passed over. They were paid for. They were paid for through Christ's sacrifice. The idea is that through the animal sacrifice of the Old Testament, those who looked in faith to the coming Messiah had their sins covered by almost like an IOU or something of that nature. Because that's ultimately what people in the Old Testament were, had their faith in, the coming Messiah. We have a Redeemer who's coming for us. We'll put our faith in Him. And those who did that, they were rescued, but the ultimate price was paid for them at Calvary, and it was solidified and done there. That temporary covering, we would say that they had in the Old Testament, that temporary covering was redeemed for full payment at the cross. The work of Christ on the cross then freed God from the charge that He lightly passed over sin committed before the cross. That's the allegation that some of Paul's readers would make. Well, if it's all about Christ here, then what about all those people back in the old days? No, the sins of the Old Testament saints were passed over for a time, but they were finally paid for at Calvary 
At the cross, God demonstrated His righteousness in that He upheld His justness by punishing Christ for our sin, and He also provides justification through that work at the cross. This is how He becomes the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I I really like how R.C. Sproul put it. He said, in putting forth Jesus as our propitiation, the Lord vindicated His righteousness, ensuring that He remains just as He becomes the justifier of those who believe in Christ Jesus. God provides what sinners need to be righteous in His sight without compromising His justice. When we are counted righteous in Christ, justice is still done. But we do not feel the punishment our sin deserves. Instead, Jesus suffered in our place. You see, that's how God becomes just and the justifier. His justice was satisfied through the death of Christ, and through that death and faith in it, He justifies. We are in such terrible condition as fallen sinners that God literally had to do everything for us because there's no way we could do anything for ourselves. He had to step out of heaven And become a man because we were all lost through a man. His name, by the way, Adam. I mean, we we are so lost. Our condition is so bad as fallen sinners that God had to literally do it all. He had to come. And he had to sacrifice himself. And once he did that, he becomes just because he punished the sins of the world. And then he becomes the justifier because he gives justification Through faith in Christ. It's really amazing what God has done. So the question is, what does the crucifixion have to do with the work of Christ? What does it have to do with the work of Christ? Because that's what this series is about, and that's what we've been talking about every week. Every week we've somehow managed to point to that. Well, what have we learned? What three facets of this diamond of of the atonement or salvation what three facets of it have we examined righteousness redemption and propitiation at the crucifixion christ exchanged his righteousness for our sin we call it actually double imputation he imputed his righteousness to us To our account, I don't know exactly how that works, but it's there. It's in Him, I guess, and when we get placed in Him, we receive it. But He imputes His righteousness to us at the crucifixion, at the cross, to our account. And the double part, that's the first part of imputation. The second is that our sin is imputed to His own body. That He became sin. It's at that point that the Father turns away from the Son because the Son became the most grotesque sight in history. And you just think of how large the church is and how many millions of believers there are. Think of Revelation 7, 9. It's such a vast multitude you can't count. It's like grains of sand on the seashore. There's so many Christians and all of their sin was placed on Christ, the perfect one. In all of his righteousness was given to us. 
the one who knew no sin became sin, and the ones who knew no righteousness, you and I, have become the righteousness of God. At the crucifixion, Christ paid our debt, our sin debt. Sin, it's like it gets charged on our account. There has to be an atonement made for it. There has to be a payment made for it. That's how God's deal works. And Christ, when he died and and suffered and bled on the cross, he paid that debt. He paid the price that we owe to God for our sin and unrighteousness and for our rebellion. We have committed cosmic treason at the highest level. And Christ, as the Lamb of God, when he dies on the cross, he pays that price right through his own blood. Such an expense, an immeasurable expense. How precious is the blood of Christ. That he pays our debt with his own blood. And not only that, he didn't just pay for our debt and wipe us clean and make us, you know, make us uh, blank canvases. He applies his righteousness. And without that righteousness, we will never enter into heaven. And not only that, but he redeems us. He pulls a Boaz. He pulls a Hosea. He buys us out of slavery, out of bondage to Satan, to sin, to the world, to death. And he redeems us, making us his own people. You know what one of the problems with our culture is today? Everybody's vying for an identity. This whole transgender issue, every issue goes back to the deficit in our lives, not belonging to anything, being confused about our existence, not having an identity. Trust me, I know how this works. When I hit about 13, I turned into Sid Vicious, turned into a little punk rocker, trying to, trying to figure out, trying to carve out an identity for myself. I lived an identity crisis, got beat up, did drugs, did the whole thing. The whole world is confused about why it's here. And everyone is searching for an identity. And I'm here to tell you today, if you're in Christ, you got one. You're a Christian. And not only that, but you belong to God's family. He redeemed us. He redeemed us. He bought us out of all that. And we've been brought into the family of God. We have been made His people. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is our better Boaz, our better Hosea. And at the crucifixion, Christ propitiated. He satisfied the justice of God through his sacrifice as the Lamb of God. You just let that sink in, Christian. God is not mad at you. He is not angry with you. You are his beloved What Christ did satisfied him forever. This does not mean that we can't grieve the Holy Spirit through our sin. We can. We can create friction and frustration in our relationship with God. We can do that. But the propitiation is done. God is satisfied with what Christ provided for us. He's not angry with us. God God does not... Treat us and respond to us the same way that you respond to that terrible driver in front of you on the road. 
His wrath and His justice has been quenched and satisfied by the blood of Christ. Now at the beginning of this message, and I'm wrapping it up, we looked at Paul's vision statement, right? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. After studying Romans 3.21-26, through 26, we can see why he felt that way. We just looked at three doctrines and didn't even come close to exhausting those things. We can see why he marveled at the crucifixion, why he marveled at the work of Christ on the cross. But sadly, the cross has been transformed into a fashion symbol by many today. Even Christians have done that. It is a symbol, but not of fashion. It symbolizes the dreadfulness of God's justice and the depth of His mercy. The cross is here to remind us of those two realities. I'd like to ask you, which side of the cross are you on? Justice or mercy? If you have yet to turn from your self-sufficiency and self-reliance, trying to earn your way, your false religion, if you want to call it that, because that's what it is. If you have yet to turn from that self-sufficiency, that false religion, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are on the side of justice. And that is not what you want. Hebrews 10.26 says it is a, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a dreadful thing. The cross shows us how dreadful the justice of God is. And yet if you have repented and turned away from your good deeds and your earning and false religion and those things, and you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are on the side of mercy. And you should rejoice and praise the Lord and thank the Lord for His marvelous grace. Lastly, as believers, we don't want to forget Galatians 2.20 and Galatians 5.24, which say, as believers, we have what? Been crucified with Christ. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And also, it says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What is Paul saying here to the Galatians? He's saying that if you're in Christ, you are in, in a sense, crucified on the cross with Christ. And through the resurrection, you're born into new life. The life of Christ and the life of righteousness and holiness and pursuing the things that please God and glorify God. You know, as believers, we, we've got we've to aim our lives at the glory of God. That's the target. And each day we have to make the choice to get up, to turn from sin moment by moment, and to please Him with our lives. 
We're not doing it because we're trying to justify ourselves or trying to earn righteousness. We're doing it because we've been made righteous and because we've been justified. You see, true saving faith, it's, yeah, the righteousness and the propitiation, all that stuff applies, but true saving faith also produces obedience and daily repentance. It's in and through those things that God is pleased and glorified and how we maintain our witness in this lost world that this world needs to see something other than what it's seeing. It's in an identity crisis. Start by praying. Secondly, start witnessing and tell, tell, people, about, tell people about what God has done in Christ. That the greatest identity that they could ever have is in Christ. They, everyone wants to belong to something. Why not belong to the family of God? Offer them the hope that we have. Instead of arguing over bathrooms, let's preach the gospel. It's the only thing that works. Because it's the only thing that changes men, changes people.